Hello and welcome to the Engagement Coach Podcast. Welcome to the Engagement Coach Podcast with your host, Amrit Sander. So this week, I've got a guest who brings with him a wealth of experience in talent development and change. He's worked in organizations as diverse as media, banking, pharma, retail, construction, and held posts such as head of HR change, head of HR and talent, director of talent and organizational development, and head of talent development. He also happens to have a background in occupational psychology, so you can imagine the wealth of experience he brings with him. My guest this week is Scott Jarvis. Welcome, Scott. Great having you here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Scott, before we dive into the discussion itself, it'll be great to know more about you. I've tried to summarize, but I mean, it'd be great to know more about your your background, your career, um, and your experiences to date. Of course. Uh, first off, Amrit, thanks very much for um, inviting me to come and participate in this in this dialogue. Um, yeah, who am I? Um, Scott Jarvis. I um, am currently head of talent development at ISG, who are a construction services company. Um, I've worked in human resources for 20 years now, spent the first half of my career as a, as a HR generalist working in business partnering roles in financial services and, uh, and pharmaceuticals. And then midway through my career to date, I, I had a, I had a bit of a moment where I decided that what with me having a toddler and a baby in the house, what, what better to do and a demanding job, what better to do than to supplement that with a part-time master's degree, um, so I went back and did my master's in occupational psychology. And at the same time, I moved away from generalist HR into the field that I've kind of remained in ever since, which is talent, uh, both talent acquisition and talent development, but mostly mostly talent development. Um, and uh, since I've been doing that, I've done that in pharma, um, food services, um, retail, media, um, and, and now where I am in, in construction. Um, and background prior to that, you know, my academic history is all to do with the field of psychology. So it's probably not an accident that I've ended up in the in the game that I'm in. And I remember when you and I spoke before, you were you asked a little bit about my my early background. Um, and uh, yeah, the story there is I, I grew up in the East End of London um, and grew up in an environment where people, generally speaking, didn't go to university. And uh, and I, I had I had a bit of a, a I suppose a, an inflection point, if you like, where um. I decided to go to university and uh, completed my UCAS form, and it was a list of London colleges because that's that's all I thought I could do. And I remember my um, A-level economics teacher, who was a Marxist Rastafarian, if you could imagine such a thing, uh, said to me, I'm not going to sign this UCAS form off. And I was crestfallen. I asked why. And, uh, and he said, because you've lived here all your life and you need to get out of town and go and live on a campus for a few years. And, uh, and so... Um, uh, influenced by the choices of some of my friends, I found myself driving up to Warwick University on a day, not unlike today, nice and sunny, and uh, remember rolling onto a very green campus and uh, seeing lots and lots of kids sitting around, having fun, having picnics, throwing frisbees. And I just thought, yeah, I think I can hack three years of doing this. And so that was the that was the beginning of my, my academic uh, uh, career if you like in psychology and so it, it wasn't an entire accident that I would then find myself working in the field of HR and then talent and learning. And ironically Scott you found yourself studying just up the road from me at Warwick University so you know uh-huh. um, although I have to say it's probably not as diverse it probably wasn't as diverse as uh, where you grew up. No 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 that was a, that was a bit of a shock for me I can remember uh, wandering around for the first few days wondering where all of the uh, the kids from 
you know, BAME backgrounds were. Um, they, they were around, but definitely fewer in number than I was accustomed to growing up in, in Newham. And Scott, when we were preparing for the podcast, you and I got talking and you shared with me the multicultural background uh, that you had when you were growing up. And I think it's fascinating and your experience uh, that you had. Uh, Scott, when we when I uh, at the beginning I, I shared how you'd worked in such diverse sectors as finance, retail, construction, uh, media. Whilst you worked in these areas, in your experience, did you see any differences between them in terms of developing talent or talent development? Was there a difference by sector? I, I think that there are. Um, I think that there were more similarities than differences, actually, um, uh, because uh, if you'll forgive the cliche, people are people. Um, I suppose the, the differences that I would note between the different organisations was probably not naming names, probably more about maturity. So as you can imagine, uh, some of those organisations had more mature um, systems and infrastructure. Um, you know, obviously, they, they varied from one place to the next in terms of the budget that they had. And then I, I guess most importantly, um, you know, there were differences in historically how those organizations had invested in things like management and leadership development. And so, you know, what I did find was different from one place to the next, I suppose, was um, the, the the receptiveness um, from one place to the next to, to take people development really, really seriously. Uh, and also the latent level of capability. Um, but what, what I would say is I've, I've been blessed. I've been really lucky. Um, you know, I've enjoyed every organization that I've worked in and certainly everywhere I've worked. So I've been surrounded by really, really talented HR professionals, lots and lots of people that I've been able to learn from and on balance um, organizations that have been really rather serious. And I think increasingly so as the years have gone by about the the, 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 the central importance of investing in your people, not just for today, but also for the longer term, in order to remain successful. And as I guess, as you know, we'll come on to in our conversation, I think that recent events as um, as, as thrown that into sharp relief. You know, I think we both know that the, the organisations that are going to win, if you like, are going to be those that um, hold their nerve uh, and continue to take investing in their people very seriously. Scott, we're, we're employee engagement specialists. We focus on helping organizations improve the experiences they're creating for their employees. And inevitably, we have to focus in on leadership and management development because we know from all the data out there, leaders and managers are the highest correlating factors to employee engagement. One observation I've had with both employee engagement and with talent development is both functions, I've seen this, is they're both having to fight to demonstrate the value they add to an organization. I see this an awful lot in social media posts, in, in uh, reports or whatever it might be that I'm coming across or organizations that we're working with where employee engagement functions and talent development functions feel they're having to fight to justify their existence and uh, the value they can add. I find that really interesting um, that organizations have, have paid and budgeted for these functions to be in place and yet the, those very functions are struggling to get a seat at the table to make the important decisions and to get the organization behind them. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Where do you want me to start? Um, again, I've, I've seen that differ from one place to the next. I think that um, what, um, you know, a, a very powerful ca catalyst is obviously having uh, senior leaders that, um, that 
have a what's the word I'm looking for or, or an almost embodied sense they they have an instinct that these things are important you don't need to try and convince them with charts graphs and numbers and uh, you know factuous statements about return on investment or anything like that they just know um, from experience and intuition that investing in your people is in 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 their capability is really good business practice um, but um, obviously what I have come across down the years is the need to articulate in commercial terms why these things are important and why certain things are worth investing in because I think it's easier to make the case isn't it for investing in um, some of the more uh, immediate training requirements and left brain skills where you can reasonably easily point to what the payback is going to be or at least what the risk mitigation might be a um, little bit more difficult to convince uh, leaders or finance, depending on who you need to convince, to uh, part ways with um, you know uh, with with company funds for um, activities that are a little bit more long ranging in their payback. So if you think about management and leadership development, um, investment in soft skills like you know EQ, wellness, resilience, um, or anything that's to do with talent development, that's about identifying people with potential and then developing them so that they not only stay with the organization but progress um you know that you have to work that little bit harder in my experience to to convince individuals that those things are worth investing in um but i say it's 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 difficult it's not impossible i just think that um hr practitioners talent practitioners need to remember that you know you're part of a system and you are at the end of the day a support function um, and you know, no one gets paid if the business doesn't make money. So you do need to be able to show how what you're doing, you know, has a has a commercial commercial benefit. I'm obviously talking about private sector here, um, but I don't I don't think it's much different in the public sector either, where value is still important, um, and you need to be able to demonstrate well how are you making good use of, of of public funds. And I think a lot of the the arguments that you would make for investing in in people in the short term and the long term are probably probably not much much uh, different yeah you know i completely agree the um, experiences we've had with employee engagement is the same and I, I i used to get really frustrated when people used to come to me saying i'm trying to convince my organization of why we need to focus in on employee engagement or employee exp improving the employee experience and you know i used to have to turn around and often still do that if you're having to work so hard to convince them something's already gone wrong. You know, this isn't about demonstrating a business case. That's already been made. The reason that people are being paid in the function they are, they're in, the business case has already been made. Now it's a case of how can we improve the the experiences we're creating for our employees? So I find that really uh, bizarre uh, sometimes that, um, that that happens. Yeah, and, it's, and, and a couple of other things just come to mind for me there. You know, when we spoke before, we talked about you know, new thinking versus old thinking. And, um, you know, I, I I was really fortunate earlier on in my career uh, at Barclays in particular to get schooled in a lot of, um, you know, theory and methods and technique, which I know sounds a bit crusty and academic, but, you know, um, there's nothing as practical as a good theory, so they say. And, 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 I, and I, I found myself getting exposed to some really interesting thinking that's not terribly new at all, um, that actually does help make the case for investing in engagement culture leadership and and learning more generally speaking and and um i think you know the case for employee engagement um is actually kind of derivative of the case for um investing in 
great customer experience. Um, so years ago, there was a, there was a bit of work done on what, what I think was originally called the service profit chain, and you're going back to the 70s or 80s here, I think, where you know enlightened organisations were waking up to the idea that investing in not only great products and delivering value for money and being price competitive, but also investing in creating for a really, really great customer experience, as intangible as that might be, um, actually made the difference between good companies and great companies. And of course, employee engagement is only one step further removed from that. You know, if you can subscribe to the basic idea that Happy, engaged people will exercise discretionary effort, and that's often the difference between delighting a customer or, you know, or not delighting them. And, and we all know that bad news travels faster than good. So if someone has a less than magical experience, they they tend to tell a, a multiple of people. Whereas if someone has a great experience, they tell fewer. Um, if you if you can sort of buy that as a as a fundamental argument, then you're already beginning to make the case for investing in employee engagement not just as a sort of uh, moral imperative but a commercial one too you and you and i are on the same page here I, what i can't understand is how anybody would think they get the best out of anyone when they're sat on a sunday night with a head in the hands thinking i don't i don't want to go to work tomorrow and surely something's gone wrong you know we're not going to get the best out of people um just on l and and engagement one of the things i've really um i find um bizarre in a way i mean it's an observation with all the data that comes out from engagement surveys, now, you know, for those of you who know me, you'll know I'm not a fan of engagement surveys off the shelf. You know, the, the how do you know the questions you're asking are the right questions? But let's say you get the right questions. Let's say you're focused in on understanding your employees and understanding what's getting in their way of a great experience. Um, there's a wealth of data that can come out from engagement surveys. What I find bizarre is why many L&D functions don't use that data. You know, we, we, we're very data-driven in the work we do. And we, we sift through that data to understand what is it we need to hone in on to help drive the performance of an organization. It's got to be data-driven. And yet I find that really odd that still, in this day and age, many L&D functions don't use the data coming out from employee engagement surveys. Uh, what do you make of that? Ooh, again, mixed. I think some companies are doing a really great job of, of working with data. Um, my old employer, Sky, I think, are, are really... Uh, blazing a trail on this um, in in making sure that their learning offering is you know not only um, you know modern individualized makes good use of technology but but perhaps ultimately is is really really driven by the data. Um, again, I don't want to talk in, in in generalities, but I do think that perhaps for 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 learning professionals there is a bit of a tendency to not not see those things as directly relevant to what we actually do um or, or too removed you know that there's too many other variables that can influence those sorts of data um that they you know they they may not show a really really clear relationship to to what we actually do as a department um and i think some of it's a, a confidence thing i think you know i think as 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 talent and learning professionals we should feel um, happy nailing our colours to the mast and being able to say, if we do these things, we will it, it will have a bearing on organisational outcomes like engagement, customer experience, uh, and ultimately uh, productivity and dare I say it, profitability. Um, and yeah, all right, there's not going to be a straight one-to-one -one causal relationship between them, but then there never is, you know, in the same way that um, you know 
marketing might make claims about you know how every spend pound spent on marketing or dollar spent on marketing results in uh, this sort of outcome when it comes to um, you know sales and profit. Um, I, I think that we in HR learning and talent should feel comfortable with making those 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 sorts of claims. There's that old adage in marketing, isn't it? We know that half of our marketing budget works. We just don't know which half. Well, it's kind of the same for learning, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, I have seen in the past, um, um, you know, really, really bold claims where um, organizations have launched leadership programs and they've said, you know, this resulted on a, in a very, very specific, um, you know, uh, uh, financial outcome. And I've, I've always thought, you know, call me a skeptic, but I've always thought, well, I think to, to to be able to claim that between time one and time two you did X and it and it may have had a bearing on you know an increase in profit or productivity, great. But to lay claim to being directly responsible for this this uh, this sum of money is probably you know probably overstretching the truth just a little bit. I worked with an organization where they were trying to recreate the service profit chain. They wanted to demonstrate the validity of it. Right. And when they went through it, they realized there were just too many variables. It's not that it doesn't work. It's it's being cognizant that there are so many variables at stake in areas that we're working in. It's really hard to demonstrate that you can make this work. But it's not to say it's, it's invalid. It's just there are so many variables in so many different sectors and so many nuances that it's going to be really hard to create um, that the, the service profit chain. So it's just being cognizant of it. Yeah, and and yeah, and I think some sometimes it's tempting, isn't it, that to um to get really caught up in the in the science and the numbers and to try and prove, uh, you know, what you're doing is actually generating return on investment. And I, and I think that my, my sense of things is that the organisations that take this stuff really seriously and do rather well are the ones that are data driven and they do care about making sure that they're spending their resources and time and, um, and, and money really, really judiciously, but not to the point of trying to put um, a, a pound sign on everything and trying to point to cause and effect all of the time. I was at a conference a few years ago and I'm embarrassed to admit, I cannot remember which organization this, this chap worked for, but he was a head of learning and development and, and he was running a, a brief seminar on uh return on invest, investment in learning it was one of several people that were speaking and he did a very short skit where he, he got up and he talked a little bit about what his organization did and and it was all very impressive and then at the end someone asked the question oh how do you measure roi and he said something that um re- really i'll never forget he, he said he said i'm lucky enough to work for an organization which has leaders that just know that investing in people's capability is really really important so i'm not asked to justify um, the budget that we have. I'm not asked to try and produce a financial statement of what value we've added to the organization. And I can remember thinking, well, that's that's pretty powerful stuff. You know, you're working for a company that's got people that are um, so enlightened, if you like, so convinced. Um, they, they trust that you are, you know, you're doing the right things and investing in the right capabilities and doing all of the other things that a talent development team should do. It's not just about capability. It's about fostering the right culture, fostering engagement, developing a pipeline of future leaders. Um, and uh, and I thought, how cool must it be to work for an organization like that where you're trusted uh, and you've got a, a degree of freedom to use your your insight and your 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 know-how to do the right things without expecting someone to come to you 
and say, well, you know, justify this in financial terms or we're not giving you a budget next year. And what a great point to uh, end on, uh, justifying uh, ROI uh, versus trust. And certainly in the environment we're in now, trust is a really big thing. And, uh, you know, when organizations go to the extent of, you know, budgeting for allocating resources for talent development, employee engagement, you know, it's it's great to hear organizations that are that are trusting then to say, we trust you to help deliver. So thank you, Scott. Um, that's all for our discussion today with Scott. Clearly, we've got so much more to talk about. Um, we're going to carry on our discussion. Scott's agreed to come back next week. So please join us again next week where we'll carry on our discussion with Scott, taking into account his fantastic experience, his wealth of uh, knowledge, and uh, and we'll carry on our discussion on talent development, employee engagement, and everything else in between. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, everybody. Um, uh, join us again next week. That's all from me today. Amrit Sundar from The Engagement Coach. I will see you soon. Take care. The Engagement Coach Podcast.